Luke chapter 16 will be the return of our focus for today. As I share with you a message that I've titled, Heralds of the Hopes of Heaven and the Horrors of Hell. Today we're going to dive into the absolute most unpleasant topic we could ever possibly deal with. But it's also a topic which we must not shy away from. Many of you know this is the reason I take the approach that I take in preaching through the scriptures, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because when we come to a tough topic like this one, we have to take it on head on and hear what the word of the Lord has to say for us. And so this topic, what we are discussing today is the topic of a horrible, eternal destination called hell. It's a topic that isn't often spoken of in the modern church. No, in fact, hell has fallen on hard times in our modern era. Hell has become a subject of mockery and fantasy and frivolous curses spoken by disdainful men. In pursuit of all of the evils that will be punished there. Some individuals even fantasize that hell might for them be a more preferred destination where they can live out their vices with like-minded, self-serving heathen forever. And yet, as we find in God's Word today, individuals with that sort of mentality obviously have no idea of the horrors that await them in hell. Now, in the church, we tend to focus on grace, and rightfully so. God's grace has made all the difference for those of us who have come to him by faith. But there are many times when we cheapen grace, we cheapen all that God has granted to us in Christ by failing to alarm those who are in need of that grace just how severe of a rescue has been launched on their behalf by the God of grace through Jesus Christ. God has sent his rescuer to deliver us from the wrath of God that culminates in hell. And yet, The individuals in our society appear to be unaware that they even need to be rescued. Furthermore, I sense a stigma that's now attached to churches which speak of hell. And you know, perhaps there's a little bit of a good reason for that. Some preachers seem to relish in the thought of sinners going to hell. They appear to rejoice in the knowledge of knowing that sinners will spend their eternities there but friends hear me on this hell is a necessity because of our god's holy and righteous nature but he even he is not willing that any should perish in fact the individual who speaks most often about hell in the bible the one from whom we learn most about this doctrine this place this eternal damnation we learn more about it from this person than anyone else and that person is none other than the lord jesus christ who came with rescue as his mission 
And so when we talk about hell, when we summarize the findings, when we talk about what Jesus is teaching us, we are talking about a doctrine that we ultimately learn from one who came to deliver us from that place. So let us never get the mentality that we are rejoicing in the sinners who go to hell. Because all of us deserves that fate. Yet for God's intervention and His grace, if it weren't for those things, all of us would stand condemned to this same place of eternal torment. And so I stand before you today not to gloat about a place where I'm excited to see sinners going to when they perish. I stand before you to rejoice in the one who has rescued me from that place. And I stand before you to plead with you to find that same rescuer who offers to deliver you from the horrible fate that is hell and to compel you to join in God's mission to rescue others from that same horrible fate. That's what Jesus would have us do in light of his preaching in Luke chapter 16. When we last looked in Luke's gospel a couple of weeks ago, we encountered Jesus confronting the Pharisees for trying to be heroes rather than serving the true hero. You see, the Pharisees were the religious elites of their day. They had the respect of the people. They knew the law of God, and they sought to keep the law of God to the tiniest level of obedience. Even beyond that, they established additional rules themselves that went beyond the law so that they would safeguard themselves from violating the law. And you might think, well, that ought to please God. Well, the reality was they weren't doing it for God. They were doing it for their own status. They were doing it to be heroes themselves. They were doing it to establish themselves as higher than their fellow men whom they trampled on by loading them up with all of these additional obligations that they simply were crushed under the load of. And so rather than actually finding the will of God as the law was intended to point them to their need for a rescue, they became confident in their own abilities. They became confident in their own righteousness. And they wanted to be honored by men. They wanted to be respected as the people who had it all right. They wanted the chief places at the tables. They looked so clean on the outside, but Jesus made it so clear that on the inside they were full of robbery and wickedness. They were puffed up, full of pride. They were justifying themselves and robbing God of his glory by taking the glory for themselves. And then they made that mission out of keeping sinners out of the kingdom. Beyond all this, we learn back in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, that the Pharisees were lovers of money. So when Jesus taught that they couldn't serve two masters, those two masters being God and their wealth, they scoffed at Jesus. And in response, Jesus said in verse 15, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So the passage that we look at today contains a parable from Jesus that richly illustrates that truth. How do we know what is highly esteemed by God? 
How do we know what is detestable to him? We know these things by what God rewards and what God punishes. His rewards are found in heaven. His punishment or his retributions are experienced in hell. And so in today's passage, Jesus tells the story of two individuals who have a shocking change of fate when it comes time for reward or retribution from God. And Jesus tells this story to warn individuals like the Pharisees. And he tells this story to warn individuals like any of us who are living our lives for ourselves that our present circumstances are no guarantee of our right standing before him. And so I ask you now, if you're able, that we would stand together. We might honor the reading of God's word, starting in verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that, those, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. What we've just read is a parable given by Jesus. And some scholars would debate whether this was a parable or a real account because there are real names of real people in this passage. You've got Lazarus, and then you also have a rich man, Really, the implications of that being a real-life scenario or a parable of Jesus change 
nothing for us in terms of the application of what's happening here because Jesus sets up for us an example that describes this drastic change of fortune for two individuals. And he, whether it's a parable, being a, a story that just illustrates and gives a nice parallel with something here on earth, or whether this is a true story of someone who actually experienced this, the reality remains the same. Jesus is warning us about the eternal destination of each and every individual who has ever lived. And this drastic fortune is such a contrast in these two individuals. In terms of wealth and health and popularity and enjoyment on earth, we think about their life before death, their lives could not be any more different. One is a poor man who has a name, and that name is Lazarus, which means helped by God. His only hope, his only help was what the Lord provided for him. The other individual in this story is unnamed. He is a rich man, only identified by his great wealth and his lavish living. And the contrast between these two is so extreme. The rich man, he has financial security. He's rich after all. I mean, when, when there's a summary of his life and a summary of his character, the one word which seems to summarize it all is that he was a rich man. How rich? He was able to habitually dress in purple and fine linen, Jesus says. Now, the, to, to understand that, you know, you and I think, well, we could run over to Goodwill and pick up something purple in our day and age, and, you know, we, we could have that thing on in just a few moments. But in this day, in Jesus' day, what was used and what's described here in the biblical text as dyeing these garments purple was a very hard dye to come by. In fact, the purple that is used in the garments that Jesus speaks of here was very rare. It was very expensive. It was obtained for a, from a particular type of shellfish, and one source estimates that 10,000 of these shellfish would be required to produce a single gram of purple dye, making that purple dye more valuable in its weight than gold. Linen also was very costly to produce. It was typically worn by the wealthy and royals. Yet this man habitually dressed this way. Habitually, every day, he emerged from his quarters wearing the designer brands that could have been featured on the front page of Israel's Gentleman's Quarterly magazine. He was clearly healthy also as we read that he lived joyously in verse 19. And he had quite the vibrant life. He lived in splendor every day, Jesus says. Every day for him was a lavish celebration. Which would have meant that every day would have been marked by a great party with the elites of his society banquets and fine foods and choice wines and notable company this man had wealth this man had the style he had the health he had the entertainment he had friends he was as we might say living the american dream and yet there was only one thing he didn't have he didn't have a right relationship with the Lord. Though he was financially incredibly rich, he was spiritually bankrupt. 
And so, there was no time in his life to care for this poor man who had been bought, brought repeatedly to the gate of his own property. Not even a crumb did he spare. Now the poor man, the poor man had none of these good things that the rich man had. He had no wealth. He was reduced to begging outside of the gate of the rich man. He had no style. You see, the poor man wore purple too, but the purple that he wore was on his skin as he was covered by sores, we read in this biblical text. And those sores, along with the fact that he had to be laid at the rich man's gate, reveal that this poor man was not in good health. He couldn't even move himself to the place where he would be begging. He had no entertainment. All day he simply laid there in one place waiting for a few crumbs that might fall from the rich man's table. His only friends were the dogs that came by every day to lick his sores. It's hard to imagine a, a more miserable sort of condition to be on in here on the earth. And Jesus reveals that both of these men face a similar sort of situation. They both face physical death. They both die. And though the rich man is able to afford a burial, no burial is mentioned for the poor man whose name was Lazarus. His body was actually probably taken out onto the trash heap outside of the city and thrown there, as was commonly the case for individuals who would die as beggars in this day. And if you had lived in that day, if you had witnessed the life of those two individuals, you might have made some conclusions in your mind about how they related to God. Because what do we tend to do, right? We look upon those who have favor. We look upon those who have wealth, those who have good health. We look at, upon them and say God's favor must be with them to guide them to that place. And when we see those who are suffering, sometimes there's this little voice within us that says they deserve that. That must be because of something they've done wrong. But Jesus shows us here, that couldn't be farther from the truth. And so we see here this rich lesson on the turn of fates and eternal destinations. As the Pharisees listened to Jesus' words, they would have easily recognized that the rich man was the man they wanted to be. In fact, I think he's the person our society tells us that we should all be striving to be. Be yourself. Do what brings you maximum pleasure. Strive to obtain as much as you can and enjoy life to the fullest. Live the good life. That's the message that resounds to us in our culture. But there's one problem, friends. The good life isn't good enough. Because the life we experience on earth is not all the life there is. You and I were made to live eternally. And life on earth is only the tiniest slice of our true lives. And in this small window of opportunity that has been granted to us by God, we have the choice to decide who we will live for, where our everlasting hopes will be set.
And Jesus has told us over and over again that we should lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That we should live for the life to come and not for the life that is now. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that every man and woman, boy and girl, will outlive his or her death. And when you do, you will spend eternity in one of two destinations. Let's look at the first of them pictured in this passage. First, hear the hopes of heaven. Hear the hopes of heaven because there are some rich hopes that are spilled out in these very, this very short passage talking about heaven. The first thing that catches our attention about heaven is how heaven is described. Jesus says that when the rich man looked far away, he could see Abraham and he could see Lazarus in his bosom. Now, I don't know about some of you, but, but when I first read that, like in my mind, I kind of pictured Abraham as this giant figure and like, you know, somehow believers are gathered together in his chest, in his bosom. But that's not what the biblical imagery is here. Let me explain this picture for you. Jesus has already on multiple occasions described this great heavenly banquet that awaits those who are his as they enter into eternity. In Luke chapter 13, for example, he urged individuals to enter through the narrow door so that they might recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Now, at a banquet in that culture, the guests reclined in the table such that they could literally lean back upon the chest of the individual that was sitting next to them as they shared in conversation around the table. John did that at the Last Supper, if we read in John's Gospel. He leaned back against the chest of Jesus as they gathered there, sharing the bread and the wine. And Lazarus does that here in this passage. He's seated next to Abraham, the father of the faith, and he's leaned against Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the picture here. You see, Lazarus has died. He's gone on to be with the father of the faithful. He's gone on to be at the banquet of the redeemed. He is in heaven, and we should take heart about the hopes of heaven that Lazarus has found that we too can find in heaven. For example, one hope of heaven would be that suffering has its day. Do you hear me on that, friends? Suffering has its day. This is a message we all need to hear because as we live on this fallen earth, we're going to experience suffering. But friends, suffering doesn't have the final word for those who are in Christ. Lazarus, that poor man who experienced misery and suffering on earth, is now miserable no more. He's now resting at a banquet. He who once longed for crumbs now enjoys a great feast. He who once could not move himself about is obviously now able to move. Because, see, the rich man realizes that it's Lazarus up there, and he realizes that Lazarus is able to move, and so he makes a couple of requests that Lazarus would come, for example, and dip his finger in the water. that He might find relief on the tip of his tongue. He makes the request that Lazarus would go to his brothers. How could Lazarus do that unless Lazarus has been restored? Lazarus has been healed. Lazarus is now able to move around. 
And so, Lazarus now finds his day in heaven. He who was not able to move himself is freely moving about. And friends, this will be the case with the suffering of any child of God. If you've entrusted your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord, your future is bright. Your death will be a victory because heaven will be a place with no more suffering. While we don't know all that God has prepared for those who love him, we do know that Christ has gone to prepare a place for those who are his own. And there in heaven, we will be free from sin, we'll be free from its devastating consequences. God himself will dwell among us and we will experience no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, the Bible makes so clear. So in light of those truths, we can rest assured that whatever God has in store for us in heaven will be infinitely better than the best life you could possibly even imagine here on earth. Yes, in heaven, suffering has its day. Also take heart that Heaven can know your name. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.8, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And it's very interesting here that only one of our two characters is referred to with a name. It's the parable of Lazarus and the unnamed rich man. Only one of them is known by God. Only one of them is loved of God. But take heart. As grand as that city of heaven is, there is no one who is insignificant. Those who go to heaven will not lose their personality. They will not lose their ability to be recognized. And Lazarus is still Lazarus in heaven. In fact, the Bible reveals that when you trust in Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's where God keeps a record, record of those who are His own. At the final judgment, that's the book that will be opened to determine who belongs in heaven. And so I ask you, is your name written there? Have you given your life to Christ? If not, then I urge you to do so. Because right now, you have no place in heaven. Your name will not be spoken there. Heaven is a marvelous place of hope. But it is not the only place where you might spend your eternity. And so we move on, secondly, to hear the horrors of hell. This passage reveals that hell is an awful place of horrific torment. You see, when, when the rich man dies and goes to this place, he lifts up his eyes, being in torment, according to verse 23. He finds himself far away from Abraham, far away from the great banquet, far away from heaven. He begs for a wettened finger to touch his tongue to bring the slightest relief to the agony that he faces in the flame that he is in. But notice this, the flame does not consume him. No, the flame torments him, but it does not consume him. I mean, typically, when you get around a fire, when you throw something into the fire, you expect it to be devoured. But that's not what's happening with this rich man. 
He's being tormented by the fire. He's not being consumed by it. He can only hope that his brothers will not come to this same place of torment. And so it's so clear that hell is a horrible place. In fact, I want you to take note of four horrors of hell that are evident in this passage. The verse is this. Hell's inhabitants receive no honor. While Lazarus' name is remembered, the rich man's is not. And his earthly wealth, his earthly prestige, his earthly enjoyment, do not travel with him to this place beyond the grave. Friends, hear me on this. Don't buy into a prosperity gospel that says you're guaranteed to be healthy and wealthy and wise if you give your life to God. This man was so healthy and so wealthy, yet in hell he received no honor. Nor will you, if that is the source of your hope. So don't let good circumstances now fool you into believing that God's favor is with you when you are reluctant to give your life to him. Because that's a lie out of the pit of hell. Because hell's inhabitants receive no honor. Secondly, hell's inhabitants find no holes. In hell, the rich man requests a visit from Lazarus. Why? So that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, as we read in verse 24. But Abraham, in response, says, sorry, no deal, that's not possible. Why? Verse 26 reveals to us the, the answer from Abraham's lips. He says, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. You know, ACDC may sing of a song about a highway to hell, and Led Zeppelin may sing about a stairway to heaven, but neither of those will be present for those who find themselves in either of those destinations after death. There are no holes through which you can travel from one place to the other. And friends, that that crashes, by the way. This idea that is championed in some sections of Christianity known as purgatory. That is, some individuals believe that after you die, you have an opportunity, a place where you go, where you are purged of your sins. You don't go immediately to heaven. You don't go immediately to hell. You go to a place where your sins are purged from you through this process of waiting this process of torment this process of works that you might carry out but it's so clear there's only two destinations here and those individuals go to those destinations immediately as paul says elsewhere in the scriptures to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord for the believer meaning there is no waiting there is no transition phase likewise for lazarus he dies and he descends into hell There are no holes through which you can travel. Death brings a finality to our earthly decisions. There are only those two possible eternal destinies. As Hebrews 9.27 states, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. 
the souls of unbelievers go immediately at death into this place of conscious torment to await the great white throne judgment where their bodies will be raised and they will be thrown into the lake of fire along with Hades, which is, by the way, that temporary holding cell for hell that Jesus mentions in this passage. And this rich man, like everyone who goes to hell, finds no hole through which he can escape. He's in hell, and yet he can still see, he can still hear, he can still feel, he can still recognize, he can remember, he can speak, he can reflect, he can plead, he can suffer, he can think ahead. There was only one thing he could not do. He couldn't get out of hell. Because hell's inhabitants find no holes. Also, thirdly, we should recognize here that hell's inhabitants receive no help that's what the rich man desires once he ends up in hell he wants help to relieve his suffering he wants help to warn his brothers but there is no further help remaining for him he has chosen his destination he has refused the revelation of God both his natural revelation in the the heavens and the earth which surround us but also his special revelation in that God has revealed himself through Moses and the prophets through his holy word and so now he finds that he's rejected all of his opportunities and the rejection that he has taken now leaves him permanently separated from God none of the prayers that he is asking none of the prayers that he is offering up are being answered they could not be answered for his fate was already sealed his opportunity for grace had been extinguished and old friends let me just tell you the time to cry out for help is now Don't delay. Don't wait another day. Cry out for help now. God's grace, His mercy is rich for you now. Don't wait. Don't don't wait for the opportunity to expire. Don't wait for the flame of grace to be extinguished for you. Hell's inhabitants receive no help. Fourthly, hell's inhabitants have no hope. When the horrors are immense and the escape and the help are impossible there's only one way to summarize the miseries of those who are in hell they have no hope jesus warned about this in mark chapter 9 speaking of all those who are cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched now some people may tell you that hell is a place of temporary punishment they believe that at some point Individuals will cease to exist. That's a view that's known as annihilationism, by the way. The the idea that at some point you will be annihilated. You will cease to exist. But friends, there is no satisfying these flames. The scripture reveals to us. Ceasing to exist would be a hope. But that's not a biblical hope. This fire is not quenched. Hear what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And he goes on to say, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You hear that? He describes eternal punishment the same way he describes eternal life. How long 
will the punishment of hell last? How long will these horrors endure? Well, it's as long as the pleasures of heaven will last. And that's for eternity. That's a hopeless place to be. Pastor John MacArthur explains hell this way. He says, take everything bad that has ever happened in your life. Roll it all into one experience and make it permanent. All the pain, all the disappointment, all the failure, all the hatred, all the bitterness, all the fear, all the anxiety, and experience that to the full. And then add the fact that you have no hope. It will never get better. Such knowledge would compound and exacerbate your suffering exponentially. If you were in the severest torture and the most profound, relentless torment physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally, and you were suffering in all those things at the same time and knew that there would never be one moment of relief and that nothing would ever change, I just described hell, MacArthur says. He says it's a place of the most profound suffering compounded infinitely by the realization that it lasts forever. And nothing will ever change. Friends, I don't rejoice in this truth. But I wouldn't be a good representative of God if I didn't warn you about realities. And so I just want to ask you, do you hear the horrors of hell? Do do you hear the suffering of that endures forever? Do do you hear the punishment that is rightfully yours and rightfully mine due to the sin that we have committed against an infinitely holy and righteous God? If if you hear, don't let yourself end up in the shoes of this rich man. Don't say no one ever warned you because God right now through his word is warning you. If you die apart from Christ, you will face the horrors of hell. I take no delight whatsoever in telling you that, but I do take delight in knowing that that is not God's desire for you. And so we move on to hear the heralds of heaven and hell. In this passage, in fact, there are three different heralds that step forward. Now, a herald is simply someone who comes proclaiming news In fact, the word that's translated preach so often in the New Testament is a word which in the original Greek meant to proclaim as a herald. To proclaim as as someone announcing news. And there's some rich preaching that's going on in this passage. And that rich preaching comes from three different individuals. Or different sources, I should say. The first is the sufferer. The rich man. The one who is suffering in hell, having now entered into the flames of his eternal existence. He becomes a preacher of the gospel. Let me tell you why that's so important. This is the only time in scripture where we actually hear the voice of someone who is in hell. This is the only bit of any sort of verbiage that we would hear from someone who is in that place. And friends, let me just tell you this. There will be no unbelievers in hell only those who believed too late and so this rich man who's there and recognizes his fate pleads for abraham to get out the word to his brothers 
That is, he becomes a herald of heaven and hell. Unfortunately, his timing is too late. There's a second herald here that is revealed to us, and that herald is mentioned by Abraham in verse 29. It's the herald of the Scriptures. When the rich man requests a preacher for his brothers, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets. That was the Bible of Jesus' day. The writings of Moses and the prophets inspired by God delivered to his people to tell them about his plans for mankind. And it should be clear, if you spent much time in the Old Testament, if you spent much time in Moses and the prophets, it should be clear to you that, that God, through his Old Testament revelation, did not hold back on the idea of his coming wrath. In Deuteronomy 32, for example, Moses recorded God's words. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me, declares the Lord. Over and over again, the Bible reveals that the unrighteous will not go unpunished. For example, we read in Proverbs 11, Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished. The expectation of the wicked is wrath. The prophet Daniel also recorded in Daniel 12 too, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Friends, don't tell me that you haven't been warned about God's coming wrath because His Word contains every warning that we need. But there's still one final herald that's present in this passage, and that is the herald of the Savior. Jesus, the one who tells this story. He, he tells this from a perspective of one who's come to meet this need. In fact, it's, it's interesting here how the interchange between the rich man and Lazarus goes. When, when he's denied, when the rich man is denied this opportunity to have his tongue wetted and his, and his misery relieved, he goes on to say, well, well, then send Lazarus so that he might preach the gospel, so that he might inform my brothers, so that they might repent. But Abraham responds, he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, listen to these words, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. The irony in that statement is that he who proclaims those words is he who rises from the dead. I, I mean, Jesus, the one who's come on this rescue mission to conquer death. I, I mean, the interchange here between the rich man and Abraham is such that the, the, the rich man believes that the greatest of all testimonies, the greatest way you could possibly show individuals of your love to win sinners back from this horrible place would be that someone would come back from the dead to tell them about it. And that, my friends, is what Jesus has done. He has shown the ultimate love. He has come as God's ultimate ambassador. He has come to show you that God's desire is not for you to spend an eternity in hell, but that you would be rescued, that you would be redeemed, that you would stay away from this horrible place. 
Jesus has come as the one who raises from the dead. God has made every move to show you that he is for you and not against you. As we read in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, friends, that one has come from the dead to inform us of these things. Will we be like the Pharisees? Will we be like the brothers? Will we be like the rich man? Will we be obstinate? Will we harden our hearts knowing that God has made this ultimate move? Will we continue to reject him? Or will we yield our lives to him as Savior and Lord and King? You see, Jesus didn't come to spike the football when it comes to hell. He didn't come to rub it in that sinners are headed to that place. He came to launch the lifeline that was needed for the rescue. God has not hidden the horrors of hell from us. All that keeps us from knowing them is our own blissful, willful ignorance. And so I urge you, heed the heralds of heaven and hell What would Lazarus and what would Moses and what would the prophets and what would Jesus have you to do in light of these realities about heaven and hell? First of all, he would want you to repent of a self-serving life. That's the kind of life that this individual lived. I mean, as far as we know, the rich man in this parable was not guilty of any gross sin. Like he had murdered a bunch of people. He, He wasn't found, you know, hoarding away kids in some sort of pedophilia operation. No, this, this guy was only at fault for living for himself with the life that he lived here on earth with no view of eternity. His sin wasn't in having money. No, how can we know that? Well, like some people would come to this passage and they would tell you, well, they, the real issue here is this man had money and he didn't share it with anyone else. Well, he's there leaning against the bosom of Abraham, who was one of the richest people who ever lived during his day with the wealth that God blessed him with. And so it's not an illustration that, oh, if you're rich, you're going to hell. But the reality was this man was living for himself. He was living for his own pleasure. His only hope was in his bank account and in his nice clothes and in his good health. And this rich man's sin was simply that he did not invest his earthly time and his wealth in riches that last beyond the grave. He did not trust in or live for the Lord. In fact, there's a, there's a missing ingredient that really the interchange between the rich man and Lazarus draws out here. Because we read in, in this interchange that ultimately, you know, the rich man wants... Lazarus to go to his brothers so that they can be warned about this place. And and why does he want them to do that? Because he ultimately wants them to repent. That's what we read in verse 30. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. You see, that was the one missing ingredient for this individual. This rich man had never repented. If he could cry out from the horrors of hell, one thing he wanted his brothers to know, it would be this. Repent. 
Now, repentance is simply a change of heart that results in a change of life. It's a change that says, I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm no longer going to live with myself as the, as the king and the Lord of the life that I live. I'm going to let Jesus take control of my life. I'm going to put my eternal trust in him. I'm turning away from those things so that I might find the rescue of God. His missing ingredient had been repentance. He had never come to the point to realize that he was in center in the need of God's grace. And friends, that's an ingredient so important for each and every one of us. This passage doesn't advocate some plea to care for the poor only, although the rich man should have done that had he been in a right relationship with God. No, he refused to repent and call out to the Almighty for his mercy. And those who've done that will respond in practical ways that care for the poor that echo the heart of God, that show his love in the lives of others. Authentic faith will be accompanied by true fruit. Don't trust in a fruitless faith. But going out and trying to hang fruit on a dead tree will do you no good. First, let God make you alive with the hope of the gospel. As Jesus said in Luke 9, 25, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. This rich man had done that very thing. And so I say repent of a self-serving life, but also follow through with repentance, natural result, and receive the Savior and Lord. In Acts 20, 21, Paul summarized his ministry this way. It was a matter of testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these are really two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. If I'm turning away from the life, this self-centered life that I'm living, then I must be turning to something. And that turning to something is turning to the Lord and his grace and the gospel that he's provided where we might find life. Jesus has made all the difference here, friends. Jesus has come to save. Jesus has come to redeem. And so the realities of eternal damnation, eternal hell, eternal punishment, they're frightening. They're disturbing. And it's good that we ought to be terrified. But while this sounds grim, friends, there is good news. Because God loves us. God wants us to be safe from hell But because God is also just and righteous, he cannot allow our sin to go unpunished. Someone has to pay for our sin. And in his great mercy, in his great love, God has provided the payment for your sin. He's provided the payment for my sin. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins by dying on the cross in our place. Jesus' death was an infinite death because he is infinite God and man together, paying for our infinite debt of sin so that we would not have to pay it in hell for eternity. And so if we confess our sin, if we place our faith in Christ, asking for God's forgiveness based on Christ's sacrifice, friends, you can know that you can be and you will be saved and forgiven and cleansed and promised an eternal home in heaven. God loved us so much that he provided the means for our salvation. But if we reject his eternal life, 
If we reject his gift, we will face the eternal consequences of that decision. So friends, I plead with you today. Let Jesus stand in your place. Let Jesus be the one who's borne that sorrow, who's been acquainted with that grief, who's been crushed for those iniquities. Because that's his free offer to you. All you simply must do is turn away from the life which pursues your own heart, your own ambitions, your own will, and turn to him to find his grace so rich and so free. Final thing I would say to you here is rush before you suffer loss. While this story comforts those of of us who have placed our trust in Christ, it should horrify anyone who has not. Why? Because at any moment, a natural disaster or a crashing plane or a crazed maniac or a biological defect could crash you into the flames of hell. And so I urge you to aim for a splendor that will last. Store up treasures in heaven. Live for the Lord and trust in his salvation. Trust in his rescuer, Jesus Christ. And then the final ambition for us as a church, really in light of what we talked about last Sunday, would be this. Be the heralds of the hopes of heaven and the horrors of hell. Don't just listen to those. Be those heralds. Because ultimately, I think if we knew of the tremendous horrors of hell to the degree that God reveals them, then our hearts would be burdened for that 68% that we talked about in this pocket of lostness that our church is in the middle of here in the madison Madan area. Because what this tells us is that 68% of that population which surround us is headed for this awful terrible torment 68 percent that includes your family members your co-workers your neighbors friends if our hearts are not set afire with a hope to share the gospel then we've missed something here don't let this message leave you without a passion to let individuals know that the rescuer has come. While their situation is bleak, their hope has not yet been finalized. I would say that just as the rich man had an opportunity to store up treasures for himself every day as Lazarus was gathered outside of his gate, you and I have the opportunity every day to store up treasures in heaven as individuals right at our gate need the hope that we can provide friends let us be the church let us be the champions of God's work let us be consumed by the hope we found and extend the lifeline of the one who has come to make all the difference for us horrible I think probably just scratches the surface on what we've really seen what hell the reality of those who are apart from Christ will be like and so I I just want to offer at the end of this service an opportunity to receive the grace of Christ 
I want to offer for you an opportunity to come to Jesus, to escape the eternal flames, but also to receive his grace so rich and supreme and receive purpose in life here and now that goes beyond just satisfying myself, building my own kingdom. Friends, do you want to know Christ? The good news is that he has come so that you can know him. And so I hope that you would give earnest consideration to your own heart as we close out this service here today. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for not hiding some surprise around the bend from us. Thank you for helping us to know the consequences of who we are and what we do in light of who you are and what you deserve. Father, I just pray that we would truly build our lives around this truth. For the one who's here today, Lord, and who is not sure about where they're headed for an eternal destination, God, I pray that you would draw them so rich through the grace offered in Christ that they might find one who stood in their place, who's born what they deserve. And that they might come to you in a moment like this, Lord, just offering a simple prayer that's a reflection of a, a true heart of repentance. Just saying, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need to be saved. I know that I need to live for something better than myself. And I know that you've sent the rescuer to save me. And so I cry out to you, O oh Lord, save me. Save me, Lord Jesus. Make me new. Give me a new heart and a new passion and a new Lord and a new purpose in life. Make me new and whole and help me, O oh Lord, to live on mission for you and a mission that ultimately leads to your eternity promised through Christ. If that's your heart, if that's your desire, I want you to know that God offers to you this grace, rich and free. God, help us to cling to this truth. Help us to know, O oh Lord, that you really make this difference. And then, Father, I pray for those of us who've received that truth. That you'd help us to smell the burning flesh around us, Lord. To, to smell those who are dangling now over this fiery torment that awaits those who do not know Christ. Help us to have the heart for the one who went out on mission, who left the comforts of his own heavenly abode, that we might be saved. God, help us to leave our comforts and to live for your glory as we seek to make the hope of every fallen sinner, including us, known. I pray these things in the rich and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.